First Palm Media. Nobody covers dog sledding like mushing from First Paw Media. Our team of athletes, volunteers, race organizers, and mushers like Robert and Michelle Forto brings you closer to the sport. If it's happening, we are there. Live from the qualifying races in January and February, the Iditarod in March, and in the summer, mushing takes you on the road with our team and trail tour. We connect you with a history of the sport, in-depth interviews with a top mushers, and great storytelling and breaking news all year long. Follow on mushing.com. From First Paw Media, this is Canadian Challenge Tales. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Dan Kirkup. Our executive producer is Robert Forto, created for First Paw Media. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Canadian Challenge Tales. Uh, we are joined by uh, Aaron Peck and his lovely wife. Sorry, I forgot your name again. Eva. <laughs> Eva, thank you. My mistake. Uh, they're joining me from uh, their place in Grand Prairie before they head up to uh, Yukon for Yukon Quest. So I want to talk a little about Yukon Quest. So um, how are you doing, Aaron and Eva? Oh, I'm doing. We're doing great. I mean, had a, a good winter to not have the dogs down here, really. Uh, two-thirds of the dogs here up north with Mela training and doing tours in the Yukon. So um I mean, it's been a balmy winter here, uh, no snow through Christmas, and now we got a, a heat wave again here right now. So, yeah, it's good to, we're looking forward to going up north and finding some winter. Yeah, it's been a challenging winter for everyone with races canceling, uh, you know, lack of snow and, and everybody looking for somewhere. Uh, obviously, up in the Yukon, they've got snow, so there's no uh, no concerns there from the trail side. Yeah, the trail report's really good, actually. Uh, even as of two or three weeks ago, it was looking really good. Um, though, just to fine-tune, you know, they, the, the last few days here, they did get a couple days of, like, zero, or I think it might have went up to plus three, but on the river, it actually stayed below zero. So right where um, the shipyards park, where the race starts downtown Whitehorse, and it drops onto the river, there was just little bit of section there they were concerned about but they're watching it they've got it all put in now though it's it's looking good for the for the and then up further north at a checkpoint uh scroggy creek there's just a bunch of jumble ice and they're just trying to get a, a spot to land the plane there where they get in and out of that checkpoint so it's remote checkpoint so those are the only two little hiccups and i think by now they're solved so well that's fantastic i know people are used to hearing me talk about interviewing mushers and, and all of their wonderful experience. Uh, for anybody listening that wants to hear all about Aaron Peck and his mushing history and race history, uh, we do have a previous episode. Uh, this year, you're joining us as the musher representative for Yukon Quest over here in Canada. And I know you've been helping out with the, the board and helping to get things um, going there and providing some input with your experience. You know, eight-time Iditarod finisher, you've also run the Quest 
uh, twice, I believe a 450 mile last year and a 300 mile the year before. So you bring a lot of experience to the table. Um, can you tell us, let's just start with the dates and times. What, uh, what are we looking at for Yukon Quest? Yeah, it starts this Saturday, February 3rd, um, downtown Whitehorse. Um, the 450-mile race will head out first, I think, at 10 or 11 a.m., and and then I think there's an hour break, and then the 250s and the 100s go after that. So um, the 250-mile race stops in Pelly Crossing. The 100-mile race stops in Brayburn. And, um, yeah, so leading up, there'll be a mushroom meet and greet on the Thursday evening between five and seven at the Sternwheeler hotel. And then on Friday, there's uh, vet checks for all the teams. And, um, yeah, that's kind of cool. Our, 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 uh, former vet, although he, he hasn't been our home vet for a little while, Dr. Marcus Bart, he's worked on the Yukon quest a lot over the years. And I did rod as well. I actually met him a long time ago and I did rod. But um, he's the chief vet this year for the Yukon Quest, and I, I just there couldn't be a better head vet. I mean, he's just such an awesome guy and very um, jovial and happy-go-lucky and, and an incredible dog care special. Like he's just one of the best, you know. So he's this is his first time being the head vet for the Yukon Quest, and um, so that's going to be good. And yeah, it's going to be a good time seeing him out there. Yeah, it's always nice to have top-notch vet people that have had experience with dog races before it's a little different than uh you know looking at a dog in a vet clinic and and some of the some of the issues or challenges that come up uh are certainly very different um i do want to mention the 450 where is that one going or where, where is dawson that one city. yeah going to dawson city and okay. um yeah it's that's an awesome trail i ran it last year um my first time up and running dogs into Dawson city. It was, it was a blast. I was a dream come true. And, um, you know, I haven't run the thousand mile quest before, but, um, at least running to Dawson was something I really wanted to do. Is that the historical thousand mile trail? Are you guys following that? I mean, it may not be exact, but that's generally where it has been. Yeah. As far as I know, um, I think they're, you know, I don't know what the exact route was, say, 30 years ago or anything, but it's uh, basically the Quest Trail. Um, there's some historic trails through that region uh, used in the gold rush that, like, might be more direct to Dawson. And uh, I, I, to my understanding, they, they divert a little bit to include, uh, like, Pelly Crossing, for example, may not have been in a straight line to Dawson, but it's an important checkpoint that's road access. So, and then it, it gives the race the, the adequate distance as well, so... Right. Well, and as long as it's hitting those uh, traditional places where it's oh, been yeah. and those checkpoints, it certainly helps. If it's a community having the race go through there, I know there's a lot of impact. Uh, how about some of the dog numbers? What what do they have for team sizes for each of the races? Well, um, the 450 is is pretty big. Actually, we went up to 14 dogs, 14 dog teams. So um, it was 12 traditionally um so going back a little bit as the musher representative um this is new territory for me i had never been involved in a race organization before and always uh, my my role has been as a competitor and um i get i i was up there this summer um had a little visit with my friend nathaniel hamlin who was on the board as well and it was um yeah we were just chatting it's like there's 
there's a deep, well, there's, there's still a lot of mushers in the Yukon, but it's like the old guard and, and the people that are dug into the quest and the history, you know, there's less of them around anymore. I mean, guys like Jerry Willemite, sir, retired, Hans Gotts retired, um, William Cleden's retired. And, and, um, I don't know, there's just seems to be, um, not many mushers left involved with the actual race. Like there might've been in years past. So, um, I, I just felt, you know, I, I should, maybe this is the time to kind of step in and help out a little bit because they were needing a musher representative on the board at that point. So I thought this is a good time to try something new like that. Uh, taking a year or two off from my Diderot, it was kind of a, a fun way to stay involved. <clears throat> so the first thing I did was uh, put together a survey um, and sent it out to about 110 emails and, you know, recent, uh, I did a rod. It was about half. I did a rod half Yukon quest, um, people from the last couple of years. I got my hands on whatever emails I could get. And then, uh, we had about 44 respondents fill out the survey. And in the survey, we asked for things like what people wanted to see in team size and mandatory rest and, uh, some various other questions. So it was interesting to get that feedback from, it's a pretty good sample size, 44, and about half of them were quest mushers and half of them were Iditarod mushers, maybe a bit of crossover. But um, yeah, that's where we saw that for a 450-mile race, there was a high majority wanted 14 dogs. So I said to the board, this is the data, and the data speaks louder than it, you know, and so that's what they, they changed the rules to 14 dogs. So that was, that was that's how we got to there, yeah. Yeah, well, it's always been a an interesting discussion when they talk about team sizes for races. You know, it's a little bit more, the more dogs you have, the more time it's going to take just in terms of feeding, foodying, right? Like the, the more you have, the, the more it gets, uh, the more time. But it also allows kennels that maybe have a, a dog or two that are on the edge of making the team or not making the team. You can bring a couple extras, provides a little bit more cushion right in in trying to get to that distance even if they have a few that need to be uh you know dropped on the way or yeah. or um you know having have a, a an injury or something where the vets feel like it's not appropriate for that dog to continue so it's been an interesting discussion as you see some of the numbers start to dwindle but interesting that your increasing numbers i did a rod went back to 16 this year so um you know really really interesting on that and i like the approach with the survey um, it's great that you're getting feedback from other mushers and, and those that are there. Do you think that's something that's going to continue, uh, each year or something that you're looking at doing as, as an ongoing basis? Well, yeah, I think I would send out, uh, formulate, you know, take a little more time. That one was a little rushed and, you know, on hindsight, maybe there's a couple of other things that we could have asked to learn more, you know, and we'll, we'll do it again and get feedback again. And, um, you know, and then there'll be a lot more to go off this year. There'll be a post-race musher meeting to gain insight as to what worked, what didn't, what people liked and what they didn't like. Um, yeah, so definitely a survey is an awesome tool to get real knowledge because a lot of times we're guessing, we have different ideas of what we think mushers are looking for. And I think it's kind of evolving. Um, dog numbers for the quest, if you go back in time, I think the first quest was nine dog limit. So and then it was 12 for the thousand mile race. It was always 12, I believe. And then it might've went to 14, but it's the quest tradition. The spirit of the quest has always been 
smaller team size, longer distance between checkpoints, more emphasis on, you know, wilderness survival and self-sufficiency. Um, but I think, I think it's, uh, if the mushers want to go to 14 and we should listen to that. So. I agree. And where are the other races, the 250 and the 100? What are those sizes? Um, I believe they're 12 and 10, I believe. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. And yeah, and like, again, 14 dogs like Mela, she's going to be starting with 12 dogs. I mean, she doesn't feel the need to take 14. She's got 12 that, and uh, to fill out her other two teams that are going in the race, she's going to leave two veterans with one of the other teams. So she's happy to go with 12. You don't have to take 14, but if you want to, go for it. So is there a, a minimum then for the start line? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to misquote on the rules. I think it's, it's, it's probably 10 at the start line, but yeah. Yeah. And it's not, not uncommon that somebody would have less than the maximum. It's been done in in years past. Oh yeah. So the vet, like one, so Pelly crossing is 250 miles in. There's a mandatory eight hour layover there. And that's kind of like your mini Dawson 36 hour layover. This is kind of like a reset. The, the, the spot trackers will get new batteries. It gives the vets a good chance to go over the dogs and the vet, you know, each team that leaves Pelly has to have eight solid dogs. And, um, so we'll see how that's determined, but, um, it's a huge wilderness stretch after, um, Pelly crossing to get up to Dawson and, um, you know, you should have at least good eight good solid dogs in there. And starting with 14 gives the musher a way higher chance of having a good, strong eight-plus dog team to leave Pelly Crossing with. Okay, so is there another checkpoint after Pelly that they there get to stop at, or are they going 200 miles without a checkpoint? There's one checkpoint, and that's uh, Scroggy Creek, and there is a dog drop there. So you, you still can drop a dog halfway to Dawson. So you 200 miles with one checkpoint. Yeah. You're, I, I can understand the desire from the, the race to have, you know, that, that eight dog number, I mean, to go that far, it, it, it's going to be a challenge without a, a solid team in front. So I know we're talking a lot about the, the race and, and some of the rules, but I want to get to, uh, the fan side, how do the fans, obviously, if they're in Whitehorse and want to come down to Shipyard Park, I believe you said, then they can come and watch the start line. Uh, the information for that will be on your website, which is yukonquest.com. But what about the people that aren't local? The uh, armchair mushers, as you will, how do they follow the race? Well, I, I heard Sebastian Schnuel might be back in town by... Um the Sunday evening. So he might miss the first day or two. So we're hoping he catches up and, and does some commentary like last year. So, um, I know, um, they've got media people lined up. I don't know, you know, I, they, the director of the race is on that. He's, you know, he's got people I can't, uh, I don't know the names, but yeah, the social media, of course, I hope it's, it's an area that I don't, have much to do with or anything i just really hope they step up their game there and do a really good job because it is often the disappointment to race fans when they can't access 
information in these long distance races. And I know some races do a great job, others don't do a great job, and you're kind of left wondering what's going on. And so uh, we'll see what happens. I, I they, they assured uh, me in the last meeting, you know, that there was uh, a good media presence ready to go, uh, a media team ready to go for the race. And, and the, well, yeah, the tracker on the website, the yukonquest.com, there will be, so there will be your track leaders uh, template that is pretty standard amongst the long distance races where you'll see the map and the race flow and that sort of thing. But um, one thing we worked on recently that I put a lot of emphasis on and I put it in the hands of the, the race director, but a spreadsheet, a more elaborate um, timesheet that's more detailed in nature. I, I, um, It's been one of my pet peeves following the quest over the last 20 years is their lack of um, data that they put out. They put they might put your in time and your out time and then you're left to do the math to figure out, well, how long were they on the trail? Like to figure out what was their on route time from the previous checkpoint? Like how many hours rest? Like, I mean, there's a lot of missing information and in some, the way some races do it. And um, anyway, so because of the nature of this race and the mandatory rest that's required, um, you have 38 hours of mandatory rest 20 of that is in checkpoints and then um, 18 of it is on the trail. If you want, you could take it in checkpoints, but you could take it on the trail if you want. So it'll be a lot of uh, moving pieces with mushers with different strategies going on right from the start. And so this, this spreadsheet that, you know, I've submitted there and and, and they're going to modify and get, get things dialed in there. will tell the fan exactly how many hours of rest a, a musher has taken, how many hours remaining rest they still have to serve. And um, on route time, uh, similar to the Iditarod sheet, Iditarod always does a really great job, but the Quest has these other dynamics in it with this mandatory rest where the Iditarod doesn't have mandatory rest other than the the big ones, the 24 and the two eights. But this, uh... anyways, I really hope it will help mushers follow the race better and, and have knowledge. Sometimes you see a race where you don't have that info and you rely on somebody's Facebook page, like a handler who's doing the math and they're, well, they're waiting in the, in the truck in between checkpoints and they put up a Facebook post to, and then that's like your, becomes your main source of information to find out what's going on in a race. I mean, I've seen that in the Copper Basin for years, you know, and, and the Yukon Quest as well. It's uh, so I hope, I hope there's better data presented for the race fan in this year's Yukon quest. And I've been assured it'll be, it'll be up there and, and looking good. So let's hope for that. Well, I, I know you are very much uh, experienced in evaluating those results. I know you, you spent a lot of time with Iditarod and some of those Iditarod stats pouring <laughs> over previous races and what times were and using that as comparison. So I can understand why you have a desire to see more. In my mind, these some of these are very simple, right? If it's in a spreadsheet, you have an in time, you have an out time. I mean, just let the computer do the math for you. But certainly the rest will be a challenging item this year as it's something that's very new from what people have seen in the past. I'm not aware of any race in North America that has counted rest on the trail as mandatory. So how is the Yukon Quest going to calculate that or how is it um 
how how's that going to be tracked or or recorded? So this will be um, num- year number three. Actually, they started doing this um, two years ago when they did the three hundred mile race. Um, that was kind of the first trial run, and then last year they did it again, and then this will be year number three. So um, the the philosophy, you know. To take a bigger picture, um, and this is how I look at it. Other people might have a different perspective or whatever. But I think when you have a thousand mile race, it's such a long race that you don't um, have the need to mandate rest. Um, of course, your I did out how there has their twenty four in the in the thousand mile Yukon Quest had their mandatory thirty six. But other than that, it's like up to the musher basically. So because the race is a thousand miles, the musher has to be conservative. They have to put in the rest that is required to make it to the finish line and they take proper care of their team. So, but when a race gets shorter and shorter, if you don't have mandatory rest in there, it incentivizes like a highly competitive musher to really run long and rest short. And you get in that distance where you're 300 to 500 miles long. I mean, it's pretty long and teams can get bogged down a little bit if you know, and, I, I don't know. There's a tendency for some competitive mushers to to cut the rest pretty pretty darn short. And what the the feedback the Yukon Quest has gotten over the last few years from race veterinarians, volunteers, they just they don't enjoy seeing the dogs that tired. You know, they they would like to see more rest on the dogs and and that sort of thing. So there's a bit of um, there's a bit of pressure coming that way. Race sponsors as well have, have, have emphasized that as well. So how do you implement more rest, but still allow the musher the freedom to choose where to take the rest. And also when your checkpoints are a hundred miles apart, and if you make your mandatory rest only at the checkpoints, now you've incentivized the mushers in some cases, maybe to do long runs again. So they're back running, well, run a hundred miles straight to get to the next checkpoint because you have a mandatory rest waiting for you. Um, but if you allow the musher to take the rest on the trail, well, now it's great. The musher can not, uh, they can stay competitive in the race, but take good care of the dogs and stop on the trail and have a camp out. And I mean, maybe you're running through the heat of the day and the team looks like they need a siesta and, um, an extra meal and get some hydration back into them. Well, you can pull over and, and then that time can count towards your mandatory total, which is excellent. You don't then you don't fall back uh, in the race. You stay competitive. Um, that's kind of the the philosophy, the mechanics of it. Um, the trackers through testing have proven, um, especially when there, there needs to be two trackers. And so there, there's two trackers on the, on the sled. There's your spot tracker and then there's a tracer, which is the backup tracker. And then when you look at on the back end, uh, when you look at the pings, the pings are coming like, uh, anywhere from at, well, they're, they're both at five minutes, but then if there's two of them, they're pinging, they could be pinging every two and a half minutes. Then you could be getting a ping every two and a half minutes. So the accuracy gets doubled down when you have two trackers. So you get, and then when you look at these pings on the, on the map, it, they're, they're really accurate actually. So you can really zone in and we did some, uh, testing with them here this year um, on some training runs and got to see, you know, the musher is obligated to write down when they stop and when they start. 
And when they do that, that that is that data that the musher writes down. And I think they'll be writing it there. There's either going to be a pre like a little notebook or in their vet book, they're going to write that down. And then they submit it when they get to the next checkpoint. And those times are then um, transferred to the comms headquarters in home base, basically, where there'll be people on the computers cross-referencing the numbers the musher wrote down with the actual data seen on the tracker. And if they align, it's all good. So that, you know, it, it, it would be very tricky for a musher to try to, um, you know, to try to cheat on that system. Uh, when we tested it, it was like, it's, it's really, you're getting your pings so close together. If a musher were trying to leave and, and write down that they, I don't know how they would try to do it, but it would be, it would start to become pretty evident based on the ping rate that what they wrote down isn't what really happened. And so if that were to become a trend with a particular musher, then it would have to be addressed. But so there's a little bit of honor system there, but I, I'm going to encourage the mushers not to even think about it because the pings will show it and uh, they're that accurate actually. So um, anyways, um, that's pretty long winded, but it's, uh, I don't know if you have any follow-ups to that, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's interesting. I like, uh, the mushers can still have freedom on the trail when to rest their dogs and still maintain a competitive pace. And I like it for the most part. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I also think that if there's some discrepancy that you're, knowledge or experience, it might be relied on to say, you know, does this seem reasonable, right? Because somebody could claim that they had rest on the trail and they didn't. And you go, well, did they really run this far in this time? Does that, does that seem realistic, right? So that'll be another, I guess, check against quite a robust system, it sounds like, between logbook and, um, the, the two different trackers that you're going to have. Obviously, people being able to watch the trackers is going to be exciting. Are they going to be able to see both as well? And how do they tell the difference between the two? Do you know? No, on the front end, on the website, the typical um, uh, spot tracker, um, or you know, that we're used to seeing on the race will appear as normal it's on the back end where the pings are observed. So the, the regular fan observer on the website won't, won't see all those little pings because it, it, it does clutter it up and you have to zoom right down in and then you can, it's neat. Cause we were, I got, I was able to look at these and yeah, you can really tell the story exactly. Like, you know, you look at the first, ping and they're like you can tell what they did actually and um and then there'll be multiple pings like during their rest stop and then you can you look at the first ping when they left in the in the last ping before they pulled the hook kind of and you can and then you look at what they wrote down and then it's like okay that's darn close i mean that what they wrote down must be true because it's right there like and that's how it starts to you kind of get tell the story by looking at the pings and, and what they wrote down. And then it's, um, so I, for people that are doubtful or maybe not, um, buying into this, I would also mention that sometimes when you come into checkpoints late at night, um, 
the volunteer might not get your exact time written down either, which has happened to me in other races. You might be pulling into a checkpoint and then, um, and then, uh, the, um, you know, where's the checker, right? So, and then they come running out. Oh, and yeah. So sometimes that can happen. There can be human delays in, in long distance races too. So it, neither system is entirely perfect, I would say. So. I agree. And I think this will be an excellent, uh, you know, case study in how this might be possible. And, and for me, I really like the flexibility side of it because I think that the musher has to run the team that's in front of them based on what they're seeing, not based on a race plan that they made weeks before it started. You know, I think lots of people have plans, lots of people follow plans to a certain extent, but once you get to, you know, multiple hundred mile races, I I don't know how realistic that is to follow a set plan. I mean, unless you're talking about Iditarod with, you know, running puppy teams where they have a very, very conservative, non-competitive, right? This is what we're going to run. But given your experience with Iditarod, you know, how, how does the flexibility help as comparison? Like you said, with the the, the mandatory rest and checkpoints, I think it just ends up being a, a race between the checkpoints instead of an overall race for the entire duration. Right. Exactly. It, I, I, I love it. I love it when mushers get on different um, pattern or different strategies and you're kind of gives you more to think about when you're out on the runners, like, you know, what are they doing? You know, Oh, they stopped there. That's okay. Like, and, it's just fun to think about sometimes, but exactly what you said happened to me last year running the quest. It was only my, I was North of Braeburn. We got on those wide open lakes. It, it was really warm during the day. My plan was to go a couple hours further and then um, be able to go through Carmax on up and, you know, to do even 50 mile sets, but it got so stinking warm and the dogs were just like getting real sluggish. And I just, I had some young dogs in the team and it's like, they're not performing like up to the ideal that I had in my mind. And I'm, I'm going to take a rest right now. I don't, I just, it was like noon. I'm just like, let's perfect time. Shut them down. Three hour rest in the heat of the day. It was the best thing for them. It was the best thing for me. It was like no stress. I changed the race plan right there. We're going to do two runs to CarMax. I'm not going to go through, but it like, I mean, it was, it was wonderful to know that, yeah, the whole race wasn't going to leave me in the dust just because I decided to give my dog some extra rest. I was able to put that rest time onto my mandatory total. So yeah, race plans can go out the window pretty darn quick on Iditarod. That's for sure. Any Iditarod musher, a lot of them don't even make a race plan. Some of the best of them don't even make a race plan because they want to just see what's happening in front of them, looking at their dogs. They have a rough idea what they're going to do, but they're going to just shoot from the hip based on how the dogs look. I think that that mentality really shows the mushers that can read their team really well and adjust whatever's required to, to provide what's best for them. I think those are the best ones. Those seem to be the ones that are, are near the top um, of each race. Um, but I also like the flexibility between the checkpoints. Like there is, like you said, 20 hours of mandatory rest in terms of the, in the checkpoint. 
And I know there's some flexibility. I'm just going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you have so to it's take- six hours in Brayburn or Carmax, right. and then eight in Pelly and six in Scroggy. So I like the idea of having, you know, that rest in one or more or a combination of the two. Do, do you know if it's if they can take three in each or is it it has to be a six hour for that one? Um, well, I think those are mandatory six hours. Yeah. So I think it's a full six in either Braeburn or Carmax, a full eight in Pelly, and then a full six in Scroggy. I think that's how it goes. You can't break those up. Um, so when you add, if you divide the remaining, like you can't run from, um, I mean, you could, but I wouldn't rec. I, I mean, a lot from the start to Brayburn, you're not going to run all the way to Brayburn in one run from Whitehorse. You're going to rest somewhere along the way. And um, you're not going to run from Brayburn to Carmax in one run. You're going to rest somewhere along the way. Uh, I would suspect all the teams will do that. I don't think maybe it is possible um, that they some mushers might try to go, you know, um, in, 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 in the history of the quest, there's definitely been teams do those big runs. But And then again, from uh, Carmax, up to Pelly, like you want to rest partway there. There's McCabe. There's a dog drop there at McCabe Creek. But um, and then again from Pelly, uh, there's Stepping Stone. Like you're gonna you're gonna break that up as well. So you've got all these places in between these mandatory rests that you're gonna rest on the trail. And then the competitive musher will decide. Well, I've got 18 hours I can use on the trail. Some of those rest stops might only be three hours in between those checkpoints because they know they got another six hour up ahead and uh, if they want to stay at the minimum rest requirement. They're going to not want to rest more than three hours between those checkpoints to stay on schedule. Right. So that the other question I have about the um, mandatory rest is it's going to be recorded in 30 minute increments. So the way I understand that, and you can correct me if I got this wrong, if you happen to stop on the trail for 10 minutes, that counts as zero. Right. But is it, so you have to stop for more than 30 minutes for it to count. That I guess that would be one question. And the other is, if you stayed for 45 minutes, does that count as 45 or is that 30? That's 30. So you've just wasted 15 minutes. So you might as well just stay still for another 15 minutes and then then that time won't be lost. Right. Okay. And that would apply in a checkpoint as well. I, I believe so. Yeah. I mean, if you, if the mandatory rest at the checkpoint is six hours and you left at six ten, you lost those 10 minutes. That's wasted 10 minutes. Yeah. I'm just, there's a, I'm just playing out the Braeburn Carmax example, right? You you oh, need yeah. to take six in one of them, but if you took more time in the other one, right? right like let's say you sat yeah, there yeah. for two hours and twenty five minutes. Well, that's that's two hours. I believe so. Yeah, I see what you're at. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Um, excluding the mandatory, if you happen to take your on trail rest in a checkpoint, which you can, then. Yeah, I think I, I believe it's in thirty minute increments. I, I believe so. Yeah. It it adds a little bit more attention to the clock. Mm-hmm. And I think the the mandatory rest, the mushers seem really good at 
okay, I need to be here for six. And they're usually pretty close, right? They're not leaving early because I've seen a few of them where they, they're literally stopped at the exit of that checkpoint until they're allowed to go. Right. And the volunteers and whatnot are helpful. But it's not very often that you see people take, uh, you know, an extra half an hour or an hour in those mandatory spots. Mm-hmm. But it's the other portion that you have to decide, you know, do I wait for the next 30 minute increment or do I leave now, I guess. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on the trail. I could see uh, a scenario might be, you know, you've got a 14 dog team. Maybe you're misjudging how long if you if you don't really know how long it takes you to booty 14 dogs, it can be a big job. So if you don't give yourself enough time and you're planning to leave right all of a sudden you've gone five or 10 minutes over your 30 minute increment and you finally get your booties done. And now you've just missed your window. And to make that you, what do you do? Do you, do you just leave and then know that you lost those 10 minutes or do you just wait another 20 minutes and count another half hour onto your mandatory total? So that would be a scenario that could happen if a musher isn't really careful I know in my experience, it can get, especially if you're going to sleep and you set your uh, your alarm, like how much time should I allow myself to make sure I'm ready to leave on time for the time that departure time I have set for myself. So um, I always add way more like it's, uh, oh, I could do it in one hour. But then you think of this, think it, like something unexpected will come up and you'll wake up from your nap. And then. Uh, you'll go out and get yourself in order and start getting to work, you know, and then you've got things to do. You're probably going to give the dogs some more food. Um, did you pack your sled before you had your nap? Um, you got your, your, your drop bags might need to be tidied up. Maybe you didn't tidy up your, your leftover food, um, before you went and had your nap. Oh, I forgot to do that. So now I got to do this and I got to drag it way over there to the return bag pile or, Maybe there's a dog that um, you're unsure about him or her continuing on the race and you thought, well, I'll decide after my nap. And then you're like, oh, geez, I better have the vet come over and look at his wrist. And uh, that takes up another 10 minutes and decide to whether or not to keep the dog in the team or not. And then it's like, oh, I still have to booty the dogs and I've only got 30 minutes left and you still have to booty 14 or 12 dogs or something. And then you're like, then you're not leaving on time. And this is what happens in distance racing to a lot of mushers. And I would say the best long distance mushers are the ones that like got that dialed right in. Like when you see mushers leaving at three hours and 55 minutes on Iditarod after, you know, that means that mushers right on it. Cause they were aiming for a four hour rest, but they hit it five minutes early. So they were like, you know, when I did rod, it's not half hour increments. You can just leave when you want, but that's, um, it's an indicator that a musher is right on the, right on the ball. If they're leaving five minutes under a four hour rest. Yeah. And and that's a great point. There's always, I shouldn't say always, there's the potential for things that you can't make a decision on, right? If you're talking about an eight hour rest, what's the temperature going to be in eight hours, right? Do dogs need jackets, not need jackets? Do you need to change runner plastic based on what it is, right? There's a lot of variables that are going on with it. Uh, the scenario I was thinking of with the 30 minute increment is somebody that's resting on the trail, not actually sleeping and they see a team go by 
So now what do you do? Do you wait the 20 minutes until you can count the next 30 minute increment? Or do you booty your dogs and try and, you know, put the chase on? So I think it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, especially if the trackers are showing someone as resting and you see one go by how long before that, that one starts to move again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That'll be fun to watch for sure. And with this 38 hours total, a lot of uh, people think, oh, that's so much rest. It's a ton of rest. And it is a pretty high ratio. But keep in mind, like last year, Michelle Phillips won the race. And I maybe it was a little less. I forget the exact mandatory rest last year. I think she she took a little bit more than the minimum, actually. Um, we'll see what happens when there's if it's a tighter race. Um it should be exciting this year. Uh, there'll be more competition in the race this year compared to last. Um, there was only seven of us in the race last year, I think. And this year, I think there's 11 or so teams in the 450. And um, Michelle Phillips, of course, will be, you know, the favorite. Um, but you've got Paige and Drobny and Cody Strath coming over. And if you looked at their performance in the Copper Basin just recently, like, they have some strong dog teams. And... Um, Cody ran right, right on the heels of Jesse Holmes and Brent Sass the whole way through that 300 mile race. And so Cody, um, yeah, that's a strong team that might give Michelle a run for her money for sure. I I agree. They certainly have, both of them have, have the experience to, you know, multiple Iditarod finishes, you know, they've both done the quest. Um, The interesting item for that one is I believe this Copper Basin race is the first time that Cody has finished in front of Paige ever. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so yeah. maybe she gets first picked out of the dog yard. I'm not sure, but those are definitely um, a couple of mushers to watch. The other one in the 450 I wanted to bring up is going to be Connor McMahon. I know he raced in it last year. He's signed up to do Iditarod this year. I don't know that he'll be pushing to be super competitive. But uh, I think it'll be a real good indication of what his dog team looks like heading into Iditarod for for this year. Yeah. Yeah, Connor has a very athletic dog team. They are nimble and and quick. And uh, I saw that last year running against him in the Quest 450. Um, And also in the Caledonia, he came down to the Caledonia 200 last year too. His team has a lot of speed. And um, so, yeah, he... You know, when I started the Quest 450, I got, in the first few miles, I got blown by by Michelle, and then Connor came right by as well. They kind of left me in the dust, even in the first few miles of the race. So, yeah, he's got a pretty nimble team. Connor will just need to focus on his own um, his own personal care and make sure he's uh, resting himself accordingly uh, so that he can, you know, stay you know, functioning at a high level at a, you know, for, for his dogs and to get through the 450. Um, yeah. I know last year he got pretty tired on the trail and um, yeah, he just needs to get, get some more sleep at the checkpoints and that sort of thing. So yeah, but he's got the, the, the makings of being a great long distance musher and he's got a really nice dog team. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm curious to see how he does. I think that, um, you know, your opinion might be a little biased, but I think Mela's going to have a good run as well. She's been, you know, c- competitive in the, in the last two years doing it. Obviously, she's been, um, you know, learning from from a very experienced musher. So I'm I'm sure she'll have a good one too. Yeah, 
Yeah, Mela, um, yeah, she, this has been a very, um, you know, she worked with us for two years and um, kind of, we go to these races and run fairly even teams. And like last year in the quest, we ran almost together. It wasn't on purpose entirely. It was kind of like in between. I like, I wanted her to have her own race and, and make a lot of her own decisions out there. I didn't want to like try to micromanage anything she was doing, but I might make a suggestion or a recommendation. And that was the extent of it. And then, uh, but the teams were just really evenly matched. Um, this year though, Mela's done, all the training herself and every like this is entirely her effort and I'm really gonna kind of stay out of it uh, I'll be there to handle on the race I'm excited to watch and help and clean up the straw after they leave the checkpoints and but um it, it, I'm gonna try not to intervene really with her strategy and her race and let her I'll just encourage her and and uh, I know she won't give an inch she's she's incredibly um, resilient and she'll she'll do really well. She'll be right. She'll be in the front group for sure. So. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think just having you there and available in case she has a question certainly will be a, a comfort to her. Um, the, the other one that I'm curious about is um, Kaylin Olnes. Ol- Not sure how to pronounce her last name, but she was Iditarod finisher in 22, you know, finished 35th, you know, been to Copper Basin and, and done some other races. So, Certainly, some some interest there. It's nice to see some of the ones from you know the the Alaska side coming over, which has been you know yeah. So that's last year, right? Yeah, and you know one of the goals for the the Yukon Quest Canada is to encourage and um, incentivize uh, Alaska teams to come down and race, and we're glad to see some that are coming down. Um, behind the scenes, we just recently had a. Um, you know, a, a, an issue with uh, the customs at the border. And we had to, the quest had um, to work in overdrive to get a permit finalized to uh, guarantee that those mushers could bring their prepackaged dog food through the border. And so that's all finalized now, but it was uh, one musher withdrew. Um, Shaney, I think, withdrew for, for that reason, not knowing at that point. It, it was really hard too, because it all came up close around Christmas and it was... Um, uh, Anne, who's on the board of the quest worked night and day through this process uh, of red tape and bureaucracy to try and get that finalized. And so that's all set in place now. So that's good. So the U S teams can be reassured. Everything's good. So yeah. Um, we hope more U S teams, uh, uh, lower 48 teams, you know, after this year too, I think we'll see some good signups next. I, well, we hope there's snow everywhere next year. Of course, for all the races, we want all the races to go. But I, sh- I think there's a bunch of mushers who wish they had a signed up for the quest this year because they didn't know that their other races would be canceled. And and then it became too late to enter the quest. And, um, yeah, it would have been nice to see another uh, half a dozen mushers coming up. But maybe next yeah, year. Yeah, I think from specifically the lower 48, I, there has not been much going uh, down there. I know the Wyoming stage stop is going, which is great. Um, but I do have a couple more. She so said Shaney wasn't coming. So we have Ilana Kingsley is in the list, as well as Mike Parker, Misha Wilhees, um, Jay Levy, Richie Beatty, and Norman Casavant. That's how you say that name, are all in. Um, anything you want to touch on on any of the other mushers that are in the um, 450? 
I might be mistaken. I thought Richie Beatty withdrew at an earlier date, but um, maybe they don't have that update. I could, I hope I'm not wrong on that, but yeah. So, so uh, some of those names you're rhyming off from Alaska, I don't know some of those mushers personally, and I'm not as familiar with their previous race performances. I'm just really thankful they're coming down. And um, yeah, Norman Casavant though, I go way back with him. I've met him a lot of years ago and he'll be, he's, he's a fun uh, happy-go-lucky guy to have on the race course. So he's he'll be a, an asset for for musher uh, morale out on there. He's been around a long time, so he'll be he'll be good out there to 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 have cheering everyone up. So yeah, he's a Yukon Quest thousand mile finisher. I think yeah. multiple times he's been. Mm-hmm. I, I believe his story, if I know it correctly, he actually moved to live in the Yukon because of the Yukon quest race Mm -hmm. that he wanted to race it. He wanted to live there. He wanted to do that lifestyle. So that's a great, um, great addition there. Um, As you said, I think the website shows 13, but if it's 11, that's still a great turnout for a 450 mile race. As you switch into the 250, you know, you have some younger mushers really in getting, getting a foothold in that one. As we look at, some of, as you mentioned earlier, with some of the, you know, older mushers are now retired, and we need sort of a changing of the guard, if you will. So I, I'm going to start with Crystal because I, I know Crystal personally. I happened to meet her when she was here in Saskatchewan, and and really got started with her racing career, and and now she's up there helping you, you and your team with tours and and stepping up to a 250 race. I'm really excited to see how she does. I, I think she's. She's full energy. I know that much. So it'll be fun to watch her, uh, watch her in this one. Yeah. Chris, we're, we're just, you know, it was a whatever Quincy, you know, that Crystal joined the team this summer and stayed on for the winter. And we're just so thankful she did. She's been, uh, you know, right there with Mela every step of the way and uh, long nights of training, putting in the hard work and really earning it. And um, she's so good with the dogs and, um, yeah, this will be her first long race like this, and she's pumped, and um, she'll have a nice team. Uh, she's not planning to be competitive so much, but just to get through it successfully. And, uh, yeah, Mela's been teaching her and coaching her the whole way through, so we're looking forward to seeing Crystal out there. Right, and then uh, sticking with your group, uh, Silas is also – uh, helping out with you guys this year. Is this his first race or first of this distance? Do you know? He's run a couple hundred mile races. He's run the Caledonia 100 a couple times, and then he ran the Underdog 100 last year as well. So he's um, itching to go further, let's say. So, <laughs> yeah, let's see what happens. And, um, yeah, he's uh, he's he's keen and eager to learn, and, and uh, yeah, he's been doing a good job, so. Yeah, and then to round out the rest of the 250 group, you have Louv and Lori Tweedle, and, um, and and Ed Hopkins is on the list as well. So another one that's been around for a few years. Yeah, Ed will be running. You know, that's Ed and Michelle. Their their kennel is is you know top top notch in the world. You know, so yeah, it'll be hard for anyone to beat Ed. I think in this race. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's good to see the. You know, they because they live in the Yukon, of course, and and been heavily involved with Iditarod in for many years. As nice to see a little bit of a split in the kennel. I'm not sure if that's because of the number of dogs that are available or just a preference in terms of distance. But it's 
it's nice to see that. I'm sure for anybody out there, it'd be a pleasure to be on the trail with somebody with that level of experience. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, whether he, whether Ed's been on the runners for all of them or not. <laughs> so, um, and then, so you have five there and I think in the 100, you've got 11 on the list. Um, so again, some that have, uh, you know, a longer history with racing and, and some that are relatively new. I think it's a great race with the distance and the format that you have to really get someone started in that longer distance with, you know, a camp out, right? I mean, you're talking about 10 dogs, 100 mile. It, But it's, is there a checkpoint between uh, the start line and Braeburn where they're finishing? Yeah, there's a time station and they'll, they'll be a vet. A couple of vets on on site there to help them, and you know, it, you know, just give advice and if there's any little issues or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it's the hundred mile distance is becoming really popular. You know, you see the underdog, and then and uh, in the Canadian Challenge and 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 Caledonia and the Quest, all these hundred mile races, and it really helps a small kennel owner get out there and be part of it, and not you know have to carry a big kennel full of dogs and um, and yeah, we just hope that more of these uh, 100 mile racers will be inspired enough to work up the ranks and graduate up the the ladder and eventually be running, you know, thousand mile races one day. And some of them will be, uh, no doubt. That's how it's gone historically. But um, uh, a lot of the mushers in the 100 mile race in the quest, I don't know personally, but I'm looking forward to meeting them and getting to know them as I'll be up there, you know for the race. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I'll be meeting, making some new friends this year, last year, um, and the year before running the race myself, I was so focused on my own team that uh, there wasn't, I didn't have much time or energy to be thinking or paying attention to the mushers in the other races. I was just so focused on my own team, but yeah, like this year is a different year for me. So it'll be fun to kind of check things out and meet some new folks. Yeah, and I think that these, like you said, the, the shorter races, the 100-mile, et cetera, they really provide a, a couple of options, right, for that that smaller kennel. They want to be involved in a race. They can come out and do that and have a great time. And for others, it's a stepping stone for something larger. And I think it's great to have races that offer multiple choices so people can find what's available. I, I look at it, again, I'll put my Canadian Challenge hat on, and say, you know, from a race perspective, from an organization perspective, how much more work is it really, right? I mean, they're going on the same trail. They're leaving the start line at the same time, right? Like you have people at the checkpoint anyway. So how much more is it really? I mean, yes, there's a little bit more in the rules. There's a little bit more in terms of a different entry fee. And there's vet time, of course, to do checks. But I don't think it adds a lot of cost to races to have another option. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's been, um, yeah, that's been emphasized on the quest. Uh, yeah, having these, having these, you know, more than one class, it's all, yeah, you've got the infrastructure in place. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. We need to have more of these. And, you know, this talk is uh, even going on in Alaska, you know, at the, the meeting after I did a rod last year, there was some of the big name mushers talking about how do we you know, encourage more mushers to get in or more people to get involved in mushing and racing. And, and one of the agreed, you know, we need to have more smaller races and more 
little races around like we used to in the old days we had there was a lot of smaller races going on and so yeah i need to see more of that and um and i maybe i said on the last time we talked you know when i got my start in ontario as a 13 year old and there was a lot of six dogs 60 mile races and that was popular back then six dogs 60 miles first race i ever went to in marmara ontario probably had 45 teams at least signed up um six dogs 60 miles it was just they just kept going by one after the other after it was just awesome and i just i couldn't believe how many teams were running in that race and uh that that happened a lot in those days yeah i i I think it the mentality of mushing seems to ebb and flow with different ideas and, and different mushers as they get into more racing or start to slow down and that changes with time but the variety of races needs to continue to provide an option for everybody's level right to be able to have the 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 experienced you know very competitive teams that want to run at a very long distance you know the Iditarod thousand Yukon Quest 450 right down to your 200 300 miles but to also offer something that's shorter for those that either want to do less or are a little bit uh, new to the sport and want to get their feet wet, so to speak. You know, it's a great choice for everybody to do that. What I'd like to see is a little more coordination between the races so that you can include, you know, like a series or a group of them with points. And it sort of a lot, it gives you more of a season worth and encourages people that might go to, more than one. Now, I'm sure several of the people that are on this 100-mile list are locals or relatively local. You know, it's a long way to go for for 100 miles. But if you start to include a, you know, a, a season worth of races together and not having them conflict with each other really makes a, a huge benefit in terms of a, a season and a plan and, and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so, sometimes that's been tried in the past uh, with making a series and, uh, you know, a bonus purse available if you do three or more. Yeah, there's just different concepts. But, yeah, that's one of the things I asked in the survey as well, like was for the 100-mile mushers was like, you know, about graduating beyond. Is a 100-mile race like a stepping stone or, you know, do you aspire to go further? You know, to get a sense of how many of these 100-mile teams actually – what what's stopping them from running further you know that i think that was the question is like like what is the limiting thing like is it your location or you can't afford to feed more dogs or don't have time to train more dogs and and that was the idea the question was to gain an idea why um uh mushers may not choose to graduate behind the 100 mile distance some of them it was just confidence um lack of confidence to go further some were, I just don't have enough time to train more. Some are, I can't afford to feed more dogs than this. And that's fair. I, and others were like, I don't live in the right location to have more dogs than this. So there was a lot of different reasons why, but it was interesting to, to hear that feedback. Yeah. One, well, and given the, the costs uh, and how much the cost of owning, feeding, training dogs is, increased over the last few years those larger kennels are becoming more difficult to mm-hmm. continue to fund i mean just looking at the cost of dog food as as most of us <laughs> will know it has not got cheaper and i don't think no. it will anytime soon no. um 
you know, in addition to the costs that are associated with going to a race. Um, right. I, I do want to touch on one more of the, uh, the race items. So you obviously are able to send drop bags ahead. Um, so that time station you talked about with the 100, it, can they have a drop bag there? Is there straw there? Mm. Or do they have to carry that with them for the 100 mile? Do you know? You know, I think there's straw there. Um, I just, I, I, I'm not saying that for sure. I just remember in the last two years, there has been straw at that time station for the, for the teams. Okay. So and for the, I, I think it's just maybe for the hundred milers, I, I think, but yeah, I don't quote me on that. Okay. And are there restrictions on even the, the big race, like the 450, do they have much of in terms of a restriction on the number of drop bags or the weight that you can take, or is it kind of, you pay the cost to get it there and you can send whatever you like. Well, um, yeah, sorry. I haven't had all the perfect answers here. Um, I should, should have reviewed the rules closer before this discussion, but the rules is not, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not the race judge. I'm just there to offer support for the mushers and echo their voice on the, on the board. But, um, but yeah, I, I believe the handler to these road access checkpoints is responsible for delivering the food drop bag for their teams. So the race is not on the hook or having to bear the cost and the work to move those drop bags up to the checkpoints. It's not like I don't I don't believe you submit all your drop bags in advance except for Scroggy is a fly-in checkpoint. And Scroggy um I believe that bag will probably have to be submitted in advance. And I think it'll be limited. I think last year it was just like 40 pounds max, something like that. And you were given half a bale of straw, no more. So you had to really think when you were leaving Pelly how much straw to pack for your dogs and how much food to pack. So, um, cause it's a long ways from Pelly to Scroggy. And then again, how much, you know, to get from Scroggy to Dawson, it's like you probably have to rest halfway there uh, between Scroggy and Dawson again. So, yeah, weighing all that out, uh, you have to do a little bit of calculating and thinking on that last 200 miles of the race because you won't have much resupplies at Scroggy because it's a it's a fly-in and they really limit it there. So, Right. So just double-checking through the rules, I found it here quick. So drop bags for Braeburn, Carmax, and Pelly are delivered by the handlers. As you said, there will be a designated drop-off. And um, on their arrival, Scroggy, they get one bag, maximum weight, 40 pounds. So that's going to be the decision, right? You you only get 40 pounds. You only get one bag. So that's it. Whereas the other ones, it doesn't say there's a limit. So if your handler's bringing it and they want to bring four, I guess you can have four. (laughs) Um, there's also a bale of straw at each one. Scroggy is a little bit more limited, I guess, because of how remote it is, but it looks like you can order extras. So, um, I guess they have a choice because you may want to use your straw bale to rest in the checkpoint, but you may also need to carry one. Right. So do you you anticipate there's going to be a lot of teams that are carrying heavy, like lots of food, straw, et cetera, out of there? Yeah, I would, um you go pretty loaded out of Pelly crossing because um, that's where then you'll, then you'll have to recalculate on your rest stop. You'll probably rest. Some teams might, I mean, last year I rested twice 
between um, Stepping Stone is 35 miles from Pelly, and there's a cabin there and hospital like food. And it was just too hard to go by. And I wasn't being real competitive. So we pulled in and had a rest break there. And so that used up my first straw that I brought, but then I had another rest. Now I'm too far to make it to Scroggy in one run. So I got to step rest again. So I, I scraped up all that straw off the ground and raked it all up with my hands and packed it back into my duffel bag and reused it on my next stop because I had to, you know, on the way to Scroggy. And then that wasn't so bad. It was a midday stop. I didn't need much straw, but it was helpful. And then, and then I got the half bale again at Scroggy. And then again, I raked it all up in my hand or in a bag and took it all with me again, because I knew I needed straw for them on the last rest stop halfway to Dawson. So I was reusing straw as I went to make sure I had some bedding for the dogs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like there's a lot more thought and planning required of the musher in terms of logistics, making sure you have what you need for the next, whatever the distance is, because they are so far apart and have traditionally been so far apart with the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a rod, obviously you've been several times, they have them in some areas, at least they are close together and they do have some longer stretches, you know, over a hundred miles, but this seems to be pretty standard with the quest that you have pretty big distances between all of them. Right. And like, you know, Sebastian reminded me historically, there wasn't even a dog drop at Scroggy in the past. So you had to go that full 200 miles without being able to drop a dog or resupply anything. There was nothing. There was no food drop in Scroggy and no dog drop. So you had to go the full 200 miles on your own devices. And, and that's how it was. And there's some big climbs in there. I mean, there's, uh, oh, it's uh, Eureka. And then um, forget the name of the other one, King Solomon, actually. Yeah, so there's one outside of Dawson and then another big one. So you've got two massive climbs on that run. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so... In the old days, she was a tough one. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to watch. And I would encourage everyone to go to the Yukon Quest website. So that's yukonquest.com. You can also find them on social media under Yukon Quest. And if you go to either one, I'm certain they will have links to follow on the trackers and wherever you can find all the information. I'm not sure if Sebastian will make it back. I know he's he's been providing some excellent content down at uh, Stage Stop in Wyoming, which has been great to see, you know, a, a race really moving. And, you know, obviously we're looking forward to it. So I really appreciate you joining and, and giving us a chance to talk about, you know, a, a Canadian race that's still going and, and your involvement this year. And uh, hopefully we'll get a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of your thoughts uh, as well. If you have a little more time, you know, handling for teams and, and helping out with the race that you might be able to provide. Maybe it's just musher interviews or, or some commentary along the way. I'm sure we'd appreciate that. Yeah. I, I might get inspired and uh, step in there and I enjoy that. And so, yeah, we'll see. Um, uh, yeah. Maybe I can provide some of that. I want to give a shout out to the Yukon quest. Um, you know, crew, there's some people I don't know very well yet that have worked really hard behind the scenes on the race. And, um, um, 
yeah, just, you know, the trail work that's gone on in the last couple of weeks has been phenomenal. Um, it is, a you know, it's a huge wilderness area. It takes a lot of work. Um, you know, the director, uh, Ben and, um, Anne there and all the people on the board that have worked tirelessly and, um, and Nathaniel on the rules committee as well. There's just, there's a good group of people on this race behind the scenes making it happen. And it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of people don't see that part and, just want to give a big shout out to all them and, and again to the mushers that are making the effort to to get there and um yeah there there could be a thousand mile yukon quest next year and um the you know the invitation is open and that's we don't need to go down that rabbit hole but just let me leave you with that there could be a thousand mile race next year so let's hope for that and um yeah everyone i but, hope you follow along yeah i i agree that that there are I believe there is a desire from the mushing community to see that. Like you said, we're not going to dive into that. Um, I do want to also give you a chance in case there's any of the uh, sponsors we're going to touch on. But before I give you a chance to do that, I want the mushers as well to know in case they happen to have time to listen to this, maybe on the drive to the, to white horse <laughs> or whatnot. There is a lot as a race organizer. There is a lot that occurs behind the scenes at checkpoints, with trail, with everybody making sure that this is possible. And I encourage all of them, when you see a volunteer, when you see a vet, when you see a race marshal, whatever their involvement is in the race, just say thank you. Because that's really all it is. You you can't have these races without all these people helping and, you know, encouraging them to help, volunteer, et cetera, is only going to allow this to continue. So uh, before we get there, any of the sponsors for the race or anything that you'd like to mention – before we close out? Um, yeah, I'm actually not involved really in, in, in the sponsorship side of it there. And um, I don't want to leave anyone out. So I just, you know, if you're sponsoring the Yukon Quest, definitely a big thank you. And, um, and to, you know, sponsors that are, um, you know, on the fence, I, I'd like, you know, hopefully we see some more support getting in there. It's an awesome international event and uh, a lot of Canadian heritage there. And yeah, we'd like to see, even more sponsors get on board and, and give this thing a boost. One well, and, and to the fans, when you go to the website, have a look at the sponsors, go check out their websites, their pages, their everything, uh, because that's really um, helps in having those people, you know, even if you send them something and say, thank you. I know we've had mushers in the past, the Canadian challenge that have asked for a full list post race to say, Hey, I want to personally thank each and every one of them. So, Here's a, I want a list, email, website, whatever you can give me for all of them, which we certainly have provided. So if anyone's looking for that, I'm sure they can get in touch with you or somebody else with the um, quest to, to get that information. Well, that's a great idea. And I should make a note of that to, to, to make that, you know, an item to bring up at the end of the race when we meet with the mushers after the race, for sure. Because, yeah, that's a big deal. Absolutely. Well, and we, we have to remember that obviously these mushers love doing this. That's why they're here. That's why they do it. You understand that, uh, you know, with your experience and it, it takes a lot to make these happen. And, and if the sponsors aren't there and the volunteers aren't there and the race organizers aren't there, these races don't happen. So we need to encourage people participating, being there for anybody that still is interested in volunteering. I'm sure the quest will be more than happy to have you. Go to their website, get in touch with them. I'm sure they would be more than happy to have you. If not, 
I encourage everyone, February the 3rd, 11 o'clock, out of Whitehorse, the excitement will happen. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what they have going for uh, the start line, whether they're going to have a live feed or they're going to have pictures, but check out the website uh, and their social media options. Uh, Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Always great yeah, to talk to you. Always and, uh, Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. the time, and uh, we're looking forward to this one. So we'll get this thing out here, and uh, we'll see what happens with the race. All right, man. Have a good night. Thanks. Thanks, you too. Yeah. Bye.